Welcome to the Chess Angle. This is not your typical chess podcast. If you're an amateur or club-level player, the Chess Angle is for you. Our content is aimed at busy adults who are serious about the game but have limited study time. Featured guests include both amateur and titled players alike. And now, here's your host, director of the Long Island Chess Club, Neil Bellon. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. My guest this week is National Master Daniel Lowinger. Dan is a fellow New Yorker, fellow Long Islander, actually. He reached a master rating of 2200 USCF after college and continued to improve as an adult, eventually earning the title of Life Master. For those who may not be familiar, Life Master is a chess title awarded by the U.S. Chess Federation for those who have maintained a rating of over 2,200 for at least 300 USCF-rated tournament games. So, Dan, welcome to the podcast. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Um, First of all, I'd like to say congratulations. Thank you for doing this. Congratulations on a successful podcast. I think this is a great, um, great thing that you're doing. I was listening to some of your previous, uh, you know, podcasts. Um, and, uh, so I think it's a great service, really wonderful, interesting guests. And I also wanted to say thank you for, um, sort of including me as an honorary Long Islander, even though I've moved away now for quite some time. It's nice to still be part of the, part of the club in a way. Oh, absolutely. So where are you now? Uh, so, you know, I moved around a bit after Long Island. Um, right now I'm now 10 years in Northern Virginia. Okay. All right. Nice down there, right? Yeah, really nice down there. And actually, very interesting thing is that when I moved down here, I was concerned that um, you know I, had, I didn't have any connection to this to this to this area really, and I was concerned that I was going to be sort of losing touch with some of my with with you know with chess and with some of the uh, chess roots that I had. But as a matter of fact, um, there's quite a bit of chess down here, um, and that involves a lot of the players uh, from up there. Um, so I've been able to keep in touch with. A number of folks, and um, I'll throw a name out there because I was just chatting with him at the last tournament. Um, but Harold Stenzel, who I guess people who are members of your podcast probably know, uh, he directs some of the tournaments down here as well. Um, so I, I was able to catch up with him uh, at the last tournament, have a chat with him. That was really nice. Um, and a lot of the players in the in sort of Long Island, New York area will will come down here for some of our events. So it's it's been really nice, actually. That's great. A lot of people are also, like yourself, permanently moving out of New York, heading down south. It's just so expensive here now. So, you know, I think they're calling North Carolina like little New York. Oh, that's something I've heard. Yeah, I, I actually, it's funny because I had looked at North Carolina myself, but I can tell you that um, where I am right here in Arlington, uh, not far from DC, uh, prices are also not, uh, they're not New York prices, but they are pretty close, pretty close. Yeah, no, it's bad. Everything's so expensive. So, all right. So going back to New York and your roots, maybe you could just give us a little bit of background about when you started playing in tournaments and how you progressed to National Master. Yeah. So, you know, I grew up in Great Neck on Long Island. Um, That's really where I first encountered chess. I was very lucky because there was a weekly chess club every Tuesday night in the facility that was called Great Neck House, which was basically like a, you know, uh, a town um, community center 
Uh, and, you know, it was a great chess club. They had players all the way from beginners like, like me, um, all the way up through national masters. There were, you know, three or four national masters would come by and it was, it was every Tuesday night from 7 PM to 10 PM. And then sometimes we'd kind of take it, take it to a local diner afterwards. Um, it was a lot of blitz. It was a lot of characters, people with very strong personalities, which made it really fun. You know, there was like a ladder to climb, so to speak, you know, you could, you know, it was, it was very motivating because it was always the next person to try to, you know, snag a win from, and then you felt like you were getting better and then you could go to the next person and the next person. And so that's kind of how I got started. And then, you know, at some point uh, they suggested that I try some tournaments um, and, you know, the nearest tournament was the Mineola chess club. So it was about a half hour, like from my house, you know, and um, so I started going there on Monday nights. And uh, of course, I'm sure everybody who's listening or most of the people who are listening are familiar with the club there. And so then I got to, you know, play sort of serious chess for the first time, you know, and then from there, uh, of course, the next step was uh, to play in tournaments in New York City. Um, so at the Manhattan Chess Club at that time, and at the Marshall Chess Club, and, <clears throat> and then, you know, I started taking chess lessons, and analyzing my games and, you know, um, sort of the normal, uh, normal routine, I guess. Um, yeah. And then, like I said, by the time I, you know, went off to college, I was, I was an expert level player. And so I, you know, I was very invested and, uh, continued on from there, uh, you know, played in college. And, and then when I left college, I, um, you know, eventually made, made master. Now, speaking of master, okay. As most of the listeners know, a master ranking is a U.S. chess rating of 2,200 or higher. But, you know, once you hit 2,200, you're a master now. It's sort of like being president because once you earn the title of master, even if it dips below, you you still keep the title, right? You're still a master. Life master, of course, as I mentioned, is if you play 300 rated games at that level. But what you thought about keeping the master title if you dip back below 2,200? Any thoughts on that or maybe rating floors in general? It might be the case that I am mistaken in my understanding of the situation. So I might might be just factually wrong here. But my understanding is that a master is somebody who has a rating of, of 2,200. Uh, I mean, maybe, maybe I should backtrack a little bit. I mean, first of all, I don't really think, I'm not really a big, um, somebody puts a lot of stock in titles really to begin with. And I actually think that titles uh, can get in the way of uh, the kind of motivation that I think actually leads to more success and ironically more titles. But um, having said that, um, just to answer your question, I mean, you know, you, you compare it to the president presidency, uh, you know, when you leave the presidency, uh, you, you know, my understanding is you are, an, you're an ex-president. I mean, if, you know, uh, <laughs> that that would, you know, that officially you don't bear the title of pre president anymore. <clears throat> so, you know, I think that, um, and like I said, in a way, it's kind of like a, a non-issue, right? It's sort of semantics. So then, then I think the question is really, why do so many people refer to themselves as chess masters, uh, you know, when either they're not, never have been, or, um, or have been at one time, but, but are no longer you know, at that level? And I think that, you know, I think that that's something that, um, you know, is, is maybe uh, worth thinking about. Because, you know, because when you say, I'm a master it's sort of a code, uh, I think, you know, it's, it's a title is, is sort of a, you know, it's a shorthand way of saying, right, like when you say I'm president of the United States, that's a shorthand way of saying I control the, the military, I have certain 
powers and decisions that I currently hold. You don't have to spell everything out because you just say I'm president. People know what that means. I think when you say I'm master, you're saying, you know, I can play chess at a certain level relative to the rest of, you know, to other people, uh, whatever that top, you know, percent is. You know, uh, you know, I think there are a lot of people for financial reasons or because they're trying to get students or uh, whatever the case may be, or maybe it's just a point of pride, you know, but they say, you know, they say I'm a master and, I, you know, if the other person, if the listener, and this is where I, I get back to when I said, maybe I'm mistaken in my understanding, because, you know, it's, it's really about what are you communicating when you say that? And what you're communicating is what the other person, you know, hears you to be saying. So when someone tells me they're something or other, they have some title, you know, they're a black belt in karate, or uh, they're a uh, the heavyweight champion of the world in boxing. You know, if, if somebody comes up to me and says, you know, I'm the heavyweight, uh, you know, champ, uh, boxing champion of the world, do you want to fight me? You know, I'm going to say absolutely not. I'm terrified of you uh, because what you've just told me is that you're going to wipe the floor with me and I'm going to be sent to the hospital. Now, if it turns turns out that, you know, you were the heavyweight boxing champion of the world 45 years ago and you haven't moved since then and, you know, you've been on a steady diet of, you know, I don't know, you know, carbs only for the, for the last 45 years and haven't lifted a finger. Well, 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 now I've either I've misunderstood you or you've, you know, it, it doesn't really matter where the fault lo- uh, lies. It's more that we've had a miscommunication. We've had a misunderstanding of, 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 right. So I think more important than the sort of terminology is what is being communicated. What content are you trying to tell me? Um, and I, I, I think that, you know, the titles really only have meaning if we have an agreed upon understanding of what that is. And like I said, there may be one that I'm out of the loop on. Um, but my understanding is if you say I'm president of the United States, it means, okay, I think you can do these things. You can do certain, you know, things for our country and you can do them right now. And if you say I'm a chess master, it, it means to me that you, you know, can compete right now at a certain, certain level relative to other people, you know, and, and in some cases it's, um, you know, it's not a super, uh, extreme thing. You know, somebody's 2198 or, you know, or whatever, they dip below, you know, but I, I see some extreme cases where, you know, for example, somebody's FIDE rating, because FIDE, you know, does not have floors, at least that's my understanding, you know, and so in that way, it, 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 it more accurately measures where you currently are. And, you know, I, I can think of some people right now in my mind, of course, I'm not going to name them, but I'm just, you know, I can think of people, a number of people where, you know, maybe they're floored even at, at 2100 or 2000, you know, and they were, they were a master's a long time ago. And they advertise that, you know, to let's say to get students, uh, but then their fee day rating is, you know, 1600 or, or, or something like that. So again, yeah, I think it's just more, I think the question really is twofold. I mean, two issues that I would, I would think about, like, one is what, what are you really trying to tell me? What, what is it that you're trying to have me believe about you? And then secondly, if you're not a master at, at the moment that you say that, then, you know, I would flip the question around and say, you know, why is it that you're, that, that's so important to you then to use that word? I, I agree with uh, one thing you said early on, which I think there's, I mean, I think this is what you were saying. There's sort of this obsession with titles now and labeling. And I, I think with a lot of club players, when we talk about improvement, this is something I mentioned before. It's either like you get to a certain rating or you've failed as an improver, right? It's either I get to 2000 or I've failed in my chess improvement, or I get to 2200 or I've failed in my chess improvement. Like, do you, do you get that sense as well? 
Yeah, I think some people, you know, have that kind of mentality. And I, I think that that's a shame, actually. I think that and I, and I think that that's um, holding a lot of folks back from their own improvement, because, you know, in my in my day job, I'm a teacher. Um, and I mean, I also, you know, teach chess on, and so forth. But my main job is as a high school teacher. And I've been doing that for 20 years. And, you know, so and I have a master's degree in education, you know, and so forth. And some of the things that I learned along the way, uh, are about, you know, the science of learning. There's sort of a science to this. And it's not a complete science. There's a lot of mystery left, of course. But, you know, when it comes to learning, of course, this is not going to surprise anybody. You don't need a degree to know this. But, you know, it has a lot to do with, you know, your motivation. People who are, uh, obviously, there's motivation in terms of how much of it do you have. And then there's also, um, what kind of motivation is it? You know, it's uh, it's best to have a lot of the motivation. And then, the right kind of the motivation, right? And so, uh, you know, the typical distinction is between internal and external, you know, motivation, right? So are you motivated by external things like money and status and idols uh, and, and you know, glory and riches and honor, you know, being ahead of other people and, and so forth? Or are you motivated because of the thing itself, whatever that is, chess, you know, music or, or, or whatever? You know, so so the people I think who get to the you know the the furthest, you know, it's sort of I think relate very closely related to these two things, right? Like how much motivation do you have, and then do you have the right kind of motivation? And there are other factors too that you know influence how well you do, um, but I think those are two of the big ones. And I think if you know, I think among the top players, you know, by far, I think um, you know they've they all have you know a lot of internal motivation. You know, they all find chess to be very satisfying and beautiful um, and meaningful. And they would find it that way, regardless of some of these external factors. The intrinsic versus like extrinsic, that that's a big, big, big thing. Yeah, it's a very good point. Now, Dan, I know you have some thoughts about the connection between chess and life. You kind of started to touch on this a little bit, but I thought we could talk about it as far as the game itself, how life and one's attitude and one's philosophy is related to things like move choices and even draw offers during a game. I'm just, I'm wondering if you could sort of speak about that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, if I, you know, if I remember we had a little bit of a, a chat, you know, before we started recording and I, I think I just said something along the lines of, you know, that chess is something that we do um, as, you know, that people do as part of their lives. And, you know, I, I mean, so therefore how we approach chess is, you know, connected to how we approach you know, our lives in general. You know, I, I was um, interested actually when I was listening to some of your back podcasts uh, in what well, one of your other guests, Rob Guevara, was talking about. And I think you were asking him about draw offers. And, uh, you know, Rob was somebody who uh, was sort of in my circle when I was growing up. Um, he's a very thoughtful person. And, you know, so I really enjoyed that podcast that you had with him. I also remembered that that about him that he you know you know had this uh, that he was very resistant to draw offers and I think that uh, Rob is um, at least the way I remember him is is a good example of what I was just saying is that you know his motivation for playing the game and and I think he says something like this in the podcast is he really enjoys right it's it's an internal kind of motivation right um, he he'd rather lose then have the game end <laughs> because he has a real just uh, internal enjoyment from the process of playing the game itself. But the game for him is full of wonder and mystery and uh, joy and excitement. Um, and I think that that is 
you know, one of the reasons why Rob is such a, such a great chess player, you know, so successful as a chess player. Now, on the other hand, you know, if you are in a financial bind and, you know, chess is uh, something that you need for your livelihood, right? Well, then I think it's natural that your motivation structure is going to be a little different. You're going to be more amenable to draw offers that, that put you into the prize fund. You're, you know, you're going to be looking for different kinds of opportunities. Maybe you might even have a impact on how, you know, how you select your opening choices or how you, um, uh, you know, it could have, it, it, it can go very deep, you know, these things. Um, that's really your life circumstances and, uh, and sort of your, you know, who you are outside of chess is now sort of having an impact, right, on, on how you play your chess. You know, I think that all of those things are, and that, that, you know, chess is not unique in that way. I mean, when people decide whether to go to college or take a part-time job or what to major in or what to study, uh, folks who, you know, let's say have the luxury of, you know, making decisions based purely on, let's say their, their passion for something are in a different position having to do with their life circumstances than somebody who maybe, you know, has to do something for some other reason, or, uh, you know, is trying to um, go into the family business, or, you know, they have something set up for them that uh, predates their engagement with that activity. Uh, so again, I think it's the same thing with chess. You know, I, I just thought the person who popped into my head just now was Hikaru Nakamura, who everybody knows. And, uh, you know, he, he was also in the New York chess scene, of course, when he was very young, his family, you know, his, his brother, his older brother, and his stepfather, prominent chess coach and, and chess master. So that's something that, you know, he brought to the table. Uh, that that predated his engagement with chess. So all of these things, I think, I think that's all I meant, really. Nothing mind-blowingly insightful there. <laughs> Just that you know, uh, we're all we all come from somewhere, and we're all situated in certain circumstances, and these things impact who we are and and what's valuable to us, and why we make the decisions we make. And then if we play chess as part of our life, then that's going to also just like everything else we do. Uh, is going to just be a piece a piece of that same puzzle. That's all. Let's jump to playing kids because this is a big topic of conversation among adult amateur tournament players because from what I'm hearing, I haven't been at these major weekend tournaments myself in quite some time because I have the club and I'm more of a weekly club guy. That's just kind of my scene. But these weekend tournaments, the Continental Chess Association events, for example. For those of you outside of the U.S., the CCA or the Continental Chess Association, they run most of the major weekend events here in the States. They're not the only organization, but they're probably the most prominent one. And what I'm hearing at these weekend tournaments is they're being dominated by kids, a lot of kids playing and this is where the whole idea of rating deflation comes in, where you have these kids who are playing at a level that is much higher than their listed rating. In other words, their ratings aren't catching up to their strengths. And a lot of adults have these stereotypes about kids. They can't play end games. They only know tactics, when in fact that may not be true. And it could be the adults who are the poor end game players actually. And they're just kind of making excuses. But Dan, I know you kind of have some thoughts on this. So I was hoping you could kind of take it from there. Yeah. So, well, there's actually, there's a lot to unpack in, 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 in what you said. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know that I necessarily agree with the characterization that, um, you know, that, the, that their level is, that their rating is not um, sort of aligned with, uh, with their level. I, I, I think that, or that, you know, I mean, it really depends how you view it. Um, I think that, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, um, it's not a fixed mark, you know, it's not a fixed target. What we're talking about it's a moving target the rating system you know 
you know, what it means. Again, it's sort of like when you say you're a master, right? It's, it's a code. You know, I tell my students, so I'm a teacher, right? And I give my students grades and I tell my students, look, you know, the grade, you know, if you get an A, it's a code. It's, it's not a meaningless letter, right? It says that you have a certain level of mastery of this material, right? It just doesn't spell it out in all those words. It, it, it does a one letter, but it's a code. We both understand what the code means. You know, you completed all your work. You showed that you could complete these tasks. That's what the code means. I could just type it all out in sentences, right? You completed all the tasks. You did them excellently. Your grammar is very strong. Your vocabulary is diverse. But instead, I give you this code and we both know what it means. And I think that this is part of the issue with, with, you know, with ratings and with titles and with actually with language in general is that, you know, words are, are codes. Uh, the whole point of them is that I try to take what's my understanding of something in, in my mind and use this code to transfer it to your mind. But if you read the code differently, if you're using a different decoding device, then that's when we get into some issues. So again, I guess you can say it's a little bit philosophical in the sense that you have to think to yourself, what does this rating mean? And, you know, our understanding of chess has has grown enormously um, and continues to grow at an accelerated pace uh, thanks to technology. And it always has. You know, this is not an issue that's unique to the computer era or anything like that. You know, before the computers, there was uh, paper and pen and people would note down their discoveries and observations about chess and the next generation would benefit from that. So it stands to reason that, you know, somebody who's rated, you know, 1800 in 1980 is is not going to be they might be the same strength but the rest of the chess community has moved forward right so to really you know it's like a you know it's like a treadmill if you're standing still then you're moving backwards or at least you'll perceive it as if you're moving backwards in fact you're not you're not moving backwards really it really depends on how you look at the situation okay so in that sense you know some people will say and pe people have said to me that you know some of these views are, are a little philosophical, but I, I don't think they are, or I don't think that I'm doing this to be philosophical. I'm just doing this because I think that's just how the reality of the situation is. You know, if I play against someone and I win, and then I tell them, here, read these 20 chess books. And, and then it, while they're reading those 20 chess books, I don't do anything. Well, then the next time we play, if they beat me, did I get worse? No, I, I didn't get worse. Right. But that other person has has, you know, has caught up and, and that's what's happening. So, yeah. So I think that that's one one issue is this idea that, you know, I think some people have this, you know, this feeling of I, I don't want to use this. I'm trying to think of a different word other than entitle, entitlement because that has such a negative feel to it. But, you know, you're not really you know, you're not you, you know, you have to earn it every time at the chessboard. You know, um, when I sit down against somebody who's a kid or anybody, an adult and, you know, I'm rated twenty two hundred something. It doesn't really matter what they're rated. You know, they get the same 16 pieces that I get. And I don't feel entitled, you know, to a victory that they they owe it to me. They don't owe me anything. You know, it's they get to play their game. I get to play my game and may the best, you know, may the best player win. So it's not like, well, I'm a master. Let's get back to this sort of like, what what are we really saying when we say I'm a master? Does this mean that you're supposed to collapse, you know, before me? You know, I, I don't I don't think so. Yeah, I was rambling a little bit there, but... Uh, no, 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 no. It's good. It, it's it's good stuff because it it's kind of looking at this whole thing from the big picture point of view. What about honesty? Because I know we were chatting a little bit before, and you believe players need to be honest with themselves and how that's vital to improvement. Can you elaborate on that a little bit, Dan? Yeah. So I I think that again, nothing mind blowing here. I think I, you know I think that's part of the whole kind of growth mindset thing, right? Like 
you know, but and 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 going back in chess history, this is something Botvinnik talked a lot talked a lot about, right? The sort of rigorous analysis of one's own games, and you know, being I mean, honesty is the foundation. You know, if you can't admit that you know there's some flaws in your thinking, or uh, you know, then you can't grow. I mean, again, this is just I think really factual and very simple. Frankly, nothing nothing here to see. You know, somebody who's who's unable to admit any kind of flaw in themselves by definition is not going to grow because grow means, right. You have to say, okay, there's room for me to be better. Uh, and now if there's room for me to be better, the next step is to go find where it is. Right. Uh, or it's like, uh, what is it? Um, Alcoholics Anonymous, right. The first step is admitting that you have some, you know, some growth that you need to make if you can't admit that. And a lot of people can't. Um, I think that a lot of adults in particular can't, you know, they have trouble with that. And that's not, a knock on them, I think that that's just natural. You know, um, when you're a kid, you don't have as much invested emotionally and otherwise in the way that you are. And this is not just chess, right? This gets back to you said chess in life. Uh, when you're a kid, you, you're, you're not deeply invested in strong opinions on, you know, anything. You're, you're, you're basically an open, you know, uh, oh, carte blanche. You're, you're, you're there to soak up new stuff and learn new things. And you don't have any prejudices or biases in chess or, or anywhere, you know, really. Uh, but then as you go through and time, you know, goes on, you start to become, you know, invested, uh, you know, psychologically, you know, uh, um, emotionally, you know, maybe financially, uh, whatever in, in your positions and in your, uh, you know, uh, decisions that you've made in the past and so forth and so on your memories, you know, positive memories and so forth. And by the way, this happens at all levels. I, I, I remember Anand was talking about this in an interview, you know, he was saying that, you know, because Anand is an amazing example of longevity in chess and uh, staying at the top. There, there are folks who've done this, you know, Smyslov, you know, Korchnoi, probably, uh, I'm sure Magnus, you know, will probably do this as well. I was just listening to uh, a podcast by Fabiano who was talking about this. But, you know, like, so anyway, Anand was asked this question and he said, you know, he said that when he plays with the computer, it's, it's like, it's constantly kind of making him question his previous assumptions about about things and he has to keep revising, you know, which is humbling. I, and and so, you know, imagine if it's humbling, I mean, he's a world, you know, world champion and he's still, you know, what he, what he says is uh, what he thinks about the position is, is insufficient. Um, I remember Kasparov also said something like, um, you know, the computer came up in like, in like five minutes, basically the essence of what he said was basically in five minutes, the computer refuted like his entire preparation for the 1993 world championship match with short, you know, this is like teams of grandmasters over months or whatever. The whole thing was like, you know, re refuted in, in, in five minutes by, by the machine. So, you know, that's, that's, I think very difficult for a lot of people it has nothing to do with the fact that you're an adult other than just an adult by definition means that time has gone on and you've become more invested in these things, you know, children, they just, you know, they don't have that obstacle uh, to overcome. I think also a lot of adult club players, whatever, 1,400, 1,500, 1,600 players, that type of range, they're in denial about what their weaknesses are. It's kind of what you were saying. And they think the answer is, well, to get more chess books or more courses. But if the issue is that they keep getting into time trouble because of perfectionism, you know, buying more books or studying more theory may not help with that. If, if it's that they're thinking every move their opponent makes is a mating threat, you follow what I'm saying? Like oh, there are these mental... Yeah, there are these mental errors that they're in denial about, 
that no amount of chess instructional material is going to clean up. It just comes through experience and self-awareness. Would you agree? Well, I would definitely agree that the self-awareness thing I think is, is enormous. You know, I mean, you know, what, again, what we, we can ask this question, like, you know, what is a uh, national master, right? What, what is, what, are, what is a rating and what is, what is chess, right? I mean, the thing is that, you know, um, chess is really the, you know, it's the solving of unique problems, right? That, that share something with your experience, but, you know, in every chess game, especially at the 1400, 1500, 1600 club level, but even at the top levels, the majority of what people are doing, yes, there are games that go 20 moves of theory and nobody's played a single move, but in general, overall, everybody is solving, looking at a position for the first time at some point in the game. And most of chess, you know, is that. So it's how you, it's how you think that's what's really important. It's, you know, you, like you said, you could memorize, you know, more theory, or you could, you know, get more instructional material, as you say, but if, if your thinking is flawed in some kind of way, um, then that is a, you know, that is a sort of a, a, a disease that's going to show up, uh, you know, it's not a whack-a-mole thing. You can't say, well, I'm going to take care of it. It's just in this position or that position. No, that's something that's going to infect the entire, the entire organism in a way. For adults who have limited study time, going to put you on the spot a little bit here. Most of our listeners, you know, myself included, we can only devote so much time to studying chess. You have any thoughts on that? Like what areas they should or should not focus on the most? Is is it really dependent upon the person? I don't know if you have some general ideas that you want to share because there's a lot of different things, you know, floating out there, like just focus on tactics, this, that, and the other thing. Just wondering what your take is. Yeah. So again, there's like a sort of, you know, the longer answer, the shorter answer depends how much we want to unpack on this. I would say, you know, let me give some examples stand out from, cause I've coached a lot of adults. Like I had an adult once, this is a pretty extreme example, but I'll just start there. Cause you know, I had an adult student once who said that, um, they didn't want to sacrifice any pieces. Like they felt like, you know, in order to dominate their opponent, they really wanted to like learn to dominate their opponent. And they felt like if they were giving up pieces, like even if they won at the end, if they were down to just like King and Rook, then they felt like they had basically lost also, you know, like, you know, they only won by a little bit. So they said, look, you know, you have to teach me like, I want to completely, I want all of my pieces alive at the end. Like, I want to be a complete domination. Again, that's a pretty extreme example. <laughs> okay. But I was a person like that and they were paying me, you know, every week to teach them. And that was their, like, you know, their thing. So that's like a pretty clear example, right? Of like, you're trying to bend the game to your will. Um, you're not open to the idea that you're think, you know, that you, that, that what, what you want is not, is not um, aligned with, you know, how the game, how the game works. And I think, um, like I said, that's an extreme example. You know, there was another person who, uh, you know, who was much higher rated. They were like 1600. The, you know, that first person was like an 1000 or 900 rated player. But the other adult I had was was like 1600. Um, but they had a similar kind of thing in the sense that they, you know, were very rigid about uh, a number of things. But for example, like their opening systems, they had these opening systems that they had played for a long time or whatever. And you know, there, there were these flaws and, you know, I mean, they were, they were, they were dubious openings and, but, and this, this is a good example of this because they had had fond memories of it and they felt very attached to it and they didn't feel comfortable leaving that kind of comfort zone, you know, and I sympathize with that very, uh, very strongly, especially when I was growing up, you know, um, I had a similar feeling about my opening systems. They were sort of tricky openings, but they weren't really 
aligned with uh, the real principles of chess, let's put it that way, deeper strategies. And the thing is that, you know, again, as I say, it's it's not a fixed target. Chess keeps moving on. So in the pre-computer age, you know, in the age when people didn't really know as much, uh, that that could get you to a certain level. But if you just keep relying on the same old thing, if you're not adapting with the times, um, I think that chess is not totally unique in this way. If you're not keeping up, then it's that treadmill analogy. Then you are falling behind just because other people are moving forward on you. And so he said the same thing to me. He's like, look, you know, this is the, here are some red lines for me. I'm not going to, you know, I, I want you to teach me, but we need to stay within the, these kind of parameters. You know, anytime you put, you know, these kind of artificial parameters on something like that. And I think what I'm saying is I think other people do it. They, they may not articulate it out loud. You know, they may do it subconsciously in their own minds. They're not willing to sort of stand, be, you know, go beyond uh, some kind of, you know, some kind of thinking um, bias, you know, some kind of thing in their thinking where they're like, I won't consider these kind of moves. I'm not willing to take this kind of risk. You know, this is something, you know, I doubled, pawn, you know, and this is also obviously throughout the history of chess, there have been these kinds of things. I was looking at an Alakine game recently. I believe it was against, yeah, it was against Irva from their match, 1937. And, you know, it was an end game where Alakine had a rook and a bishop, you know, a bunch of pawns, and Irva had a rook and a knight and a bunch of pawns. And the bishop was like clearly much stronger than the knight, you know, and I think that this is something that I'm not, I'm not a, like great at chess history, but my understanding is like, this is something that really became clear in the Fisher, you know, era, this rook and bishop, he was beating rook and, with rook and bishop against bishop and uh, rook and knight a lot. And I was reading, this is in Alakine's best games, collected games. And he, you know, he like gives up the bishop for the knight. So, you know, so he can play like a pure rook and pawn ending. And he's talking about how like, this is, you know, this is the only way to go or whatever in his comments. And that's like an example of that. You know, the computer thinks it's not the right move and, you know, it, it, it doesn't align with, I think, how people would, you know, now would think about it. Certainly, like, I thought it was very strange to give up the bishop there. The bishop was so strong. You know, bishop covers both sides of the board, so it can help your pawns go forward. It could, you know, defend against the other side with the pawns going. I mean, it's just like common. It's To me, it was common sense and common knowledge. That's not because I'm better than Alakine. You know, that's just because that's what I was raised with. You know, that was, if you want, you could call it a prejudice that I have. Um, and so I, you know, I just the, having the fortune of being, at, you know, um, chronologically ahead of in time of, of Alakine. So maybe I got a prejudice that was right, let's say in that particular case, and he had a prejudice that say that was wrong. It's just by accident, nothing I did to earn that. But I, I did think when I saw that move of his, I thought, wow, that's so shocking. And then, you know, went to read his comment that this was the way to go strategically. So what I'm trying to say is these kinds of biases about you know, doubled pawns or pawn structure in general, or, you know, what's worth more, you know, an open file or, 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 or doubling your pawns or bishop and uh, rook versus rook and knight or peace activity versus, um, let's say, structural issues or, or static issues. Um, There's so many of these things in chess, right? It's all of these kinds of trade-offs. And, and I think that in, in, on an individual level, people have these, these kinds of things, uh, these kind of heuristics or these kind of beliefs um, inside of their own mind. They think certain openings are good, even though they, you know, let's say they give up a huge space advantage or, you know, whatever it is. You know, again, part of that is that, you know, is that the understanding of chess is moving forward. People are, you know, finding solutions to things that used to, they couldn't. So if you're standing in place the whole time and you're not kind of moving, moving ahead, you know, then that, then that's going to be an issue. So I think that that, I think that that's one of the main obstacles for people's improvement. That gets back to being honest 
you know, doing self-analysis, being self-aware to use your term, you know, self-awareness uh, is, is closely correlated, I think, with honesty, um, being open to the questioning your beliefs, um, and then also the foundation for those beliefs, you know, where are these beliefs coming from? And, and you know, let me identify them. What are, what beliefs do I have? Like I said, that part, part of that is, to, um, one of the challenges with that is that for some people, I think some of them are subconscious. They may not even be super, you know, aware, but if you start to look at a number of your games, you might recognize a pattern. Every time somebody starts to attack me, I panic, you know, every time, you know, I never sacrifice the exchange, you know, for example. Well, with that being said, the question that you asked about adults don't have a lot of time to improve, you know, what can they do? I, I think one of the best things that they can do, this is uh, with respect having respect for your other observation, which is that not everybody's the same. And I think there are exceptions to the rules and people learn differently. But I think studying the games and the thought processes of great players, the history of chess, it, it kind of opens your mind. Even studying one great game, you, know, you spend 15 minutes, 20 minutes just looking at one amazing game where you can you can look at a situation and somebody does something that's totally, it's not intuitive, you know, because that, that's really where the growth happens, right? It's like you look at a position, it looks totally normal. You want to make some kind of totally like banal move, develop your piece, castles, right? And then seeing, right, somebody who's, who's a chess great, how they made a completely different move and how there's this whole thought process behind it. That just kind of like expands your mind, I think in a way that, um, I mean, that's where, I think that's where the growth really happens. You know, like for example, King E7, you know, in the, this, the Karpov Kamsky, you know, game. Uh, and suddenly you realize that this queen on H4 is like, you know, completely out of play. There's a great video where Karpov shows this game on, online, like an iChess video or something. Uh, you know, Karpov Kasparov, King's Indian, Karpo, uh, Kasparov lands his knight on D3, completely paralyzes Karpov. He's like sacrificed all these, you know, pawns and everything. He's just completely paralyzing him. These, you know, when you see these ideas, they're just like absolutely amazing. It's sort of like if you're like a writer and you write some stories and then you've never read Shakespeare before and suddenly you read Shakespeare or whatever, you know, Stephen King, somebody in your in your genre. Not to say Stephen King is like Shakespeare, but let's say you're, you know, you want to write like, you know, but you see somebody like a master of the craft, you know, of whatever you're doing. I think it just kind of expands your mind, you know, you're like, wow. And you just start to have all of the, your, your mind opens up. And I think that that's the key, right? I mean, literally we say closed-mindedness, open-mindedness, right? But like, I think that's sort of one of the ways to unlock some of those, you know, thoughts that are being kept at bay is just to see these classic examples. Obviously, Kasparov Topalov, 1999, uh, is, you know, runs his king around. And then you have to take some risk. You have to try some things in your own games. And a lot of times, I think another thing that holds people back is that a lot of times when your mind expands for the first time, uh, you actually go backwards at first, you know, you have to take some, and I think people are very unwilling to do that. You know, they, they'd rather kind of like dig in where they are, you know, even if it means they're not going forward, they, they don't want to lose to somebody that they would have, there's a pride thing, you know, like I always beat this guy, this guy's my customer. Right. And I, I know how to beat this guy. So now why would I try something different? Why would I step out of my comfort zone? Now I might lose to this person and then I'm going to feel, you know, feel really bad. But I, I think you have to do it. I think you've I think you've got to do it. And and the last thing I'll say about it is actually maybe not the last thing. I one other thing I, I'll say about it, uh, maybe two more things. One thing is I think that this is something that basically all the great players have in common. Like again, there might be an exception here and there. There might be some people who talk about it more than others, but like all of the great chess players have sort of soaked up the history of chess, right? So it's it, it can't be a coincidence, right? Like uh they, you know, Bobby Fischer, 
Uh, you can see him on YouTube talking about Morphe and Steinitz and Capablanca and Alakine and Botvinnik and Petrosian and Spassky. Like he knew all of their games, you know, uh, not just like one or two, but like, you know, he had, he had seen all of them, right? Uh, all of these guys, the people I just named, they all knew their predecessors. You know, it's, it's not, it's, I think it's not a coincidence. And even people I think you don't think of, I think, you know, even, even a lot of modern players, you know, they, they know more than you think about, about these kind of things. So the one other thing I want to say is of course, you know, with these great players, um, you know, they had different styles, right? So like uh, Alakine, let's say, you know, Tal, Kasparov, Alpha Zero, <laughs> right? Uh, sort of like in one style, let's say dynamic, sacrificial. Uh, then you've got, um, you know, people like Ulf Anderson, uh, not necessarily world champions, right? But like Ulf Anderson, uh, you know, Petrosian, Karpov, let's say, Kramnik even, you know, are, are, are of a different kind of style. I think one good way to sort your studying you know, is to sort of uh, study by style. And then you can sort of see um, if there's something that's resonating with you more, something that makes more sense to you, something that you feel like you can emulate a little bit better. I think that's a good way of of studying as well. Yeah. It's a nice history lesson there. <laughs> like I said, I'm not, I'm not the guy, you know, that's not like my super area of specialty, but- um, Right. But you believe in the instructional value of the classics. Yeah. I mean, I just, and you know, and it's like, it's not just chess, right? If you do this with anybody- with any topic, anybody who's good at like anything, like I just have, you're going to have to try really hard to think, like find an author who hasn't read, you know, the top, you know, classic authors, right? Like find, find, you know, ask Stephen King if he's read Tolstoy or if he's read Shakespeare or if he's read, right? You're not going to find someone, Agatha Christie, you're not going to say, hey, have you ever, and they're like, oh, who's that? I've never heard of that, right? Even, you know, you know, or right, find a uh, mathematician who doesn't know, you know, uh, you know, Girdle or I don't know, you know, Galileo or uh, Newton, you know, or find a physicist, right? Like everybody, all these people who are making discoveries that you may think like have nothing to do with it. Or now we're in the computer age. You might think you just need the computer, right? Okay. Now, you know, uh, you know, why would an author today who's writing, let's say little children's books or, you know, mystery novels know anything about, you know, some, some, some like playwright from the 1500s. But like, I found like almost without exception, or like modern art, right? Like what was his name? Um, the guy who like basically just splashes paint, you know, like on a canvas. It looks like some child who just like, you know, dumped the uh, the paint. And it turns out, or like Picasso, right? Turned out like Picasso was like really, really superb as like a classical artist, right? Like he had studied and knew like the techniques of, you know, Leonardo da Vinci and whatever, Michelangelo and, uh, you know, Rembrandt and and all these people, right? And you're like, well, you're doing something that, on the surface looks extremely different. So what's the value? And I think that's actually a little bit in the beginning, I said, education, um, there's a sort of a science to it, but there's also like a level of mystery. Maybe that part is a little mysterious, like exactly where the connection is. Maybe a lot of it is just inspiration uh, to some extent, but, but yeah, it's like, to me, it, it's, there, it's such overwhelming that the data is so, so overwhelming there that, you know, I think it just, there's gotta be, there's gotta be some connection there. I want to end with one more segment. I want to talk about a couple of books that you wrote, Dan. And w one of them, I'm looking on Amazon. One of them, there's only one left in stock. <laughs> it looks like it's flying off the shelves here. Uh, yeah, I don't know if that's what- I always wondered, does Amazon just put that because they want you to buy it, you know? I think that that's what I that feel is. like everything I look at, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's a chess book or like 
a toilet handle. It's everything I look on on Amazon. It could be like a, a pack of pens. It's so only three left in stock. I, I don't know. Maybe it's me. Maybe I'm an easy target. I don't know. Anyway. So first of all, I just got my royalty check. I get it uh, every six months. Uh, so I, I get it. Uh, I just got mine. So I can promise you, uh, you know, I won't tell you how much it was, but I can absolutely assure you that they are not flying off the shelves. <laughs> that's the <laughs> okay. I guess they just want me to buy it. But anyway, let, let's take uh, each of these separately. So the first one, because I, I think the second one, I mean, they they both look great. I think the second one might be, you know, have a little more mass appeal, I think, to club players. But let's look at the first one, which is the three Queen D8, that is Black Moves, Queen D8, Scandinavian, Simple and Strong. Tell me about that one. Okay. So once again, um, I may have a different take on this than you're expecting. Uh, so... Um, in the last um, segment, you asked me, I, I mentioned, I sort of went on a tangent, was talking about literature, and I mentioned Tolstoy. And one of the things about Tolstoy, you know, he wrote War and Peace and Anna Karenina and so forth, these two of the great uh, literary classics of all time. And then um, uh, then he uh, decided that they were both trash, and he tried actually to get them all burned and all the copies burned. So um, there's one thing I have in common with him and one thing I don't. Um, and that the thing I have um, that's not in common with him is that my books... Uh, are not <laughs> classics of 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 anything of of any sort. Um, and the other one that uh, the thing that I do have in common with him is I don't necessarily I don't really you know even particularly um, uh, you know uh, like recommend them or anything. But uh, but in terms of the data, I can tell you for sure that the Queen D eight Scandinavian book uh, definitely com- uh, wildly outsold uh, the second book, and I think that. Uh, I think that you know, there's a sort of um, movement out there. Let's put it that way. There's there's like like a Scandinavian club, you know, folks who are like you know diehard Scandinavian opening people. Uh, it's, it's I don't really know how to describe it. It's like a you know like a fan club or something like that. You know, and and for good reason. I mean, I, I, of course, I talk about this in the book, which is that um, you know, it's 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 very simple to play. It's very forcing, actually, in a way because. Um, you force the opponent, you know, you don't give the opponent a lot of choice, right? When they play E4, you play D5. And now suddenly, you know, I mean, the only principled response really is to take the pawn and, and, and um, you know, and, and pick up a tempo, let's say with knight C3. Um, and so it's not like, you know, if you play the Sicilian, you have to deal with the closed Sicilian, you have to deal with the Grand Prix attack, you have to deal with all of these anti-Sicilians, you have to deal with the main line within the main line of the Sicilian, right? Like on like on the Nidorf, it's famous on the eighth move or whatever it is. There's like literally like 13 different plausible moves for white. Rook G1, H3, Rook, you know, A3, Magnus is played, I think B3, right? Bishop E3, F3, Bishop G5. And there's like bodies and bodies and bodies of theory. And, uh, you know, the memory load is, is absolutely outrageous. Um, and it's very sharp. So you're in a lot of danger, no matter which one of these lines they play. So in that sense, right? And then the evaluation objectively is maybe not even that much different than, you know, in the Scandinavian, right? You're like slightly worse as black. So what's the big deal? Um, but you kind of dictate the tempo, actually, you know, you have a lot more say in in the direction of the game. And so it's much, you know, the the, prep, the preparation load is much lighter. Um, the sh- You can play... Um, on a lot of strategical concepts, it's not very concrete. Um, so like one of the feedback points you'll see like that people say about the book is they say, well, you know, like it's a little light on, let's say, you know, um, concrete variations, right? Like it's not like, um, you know, like I'm thinking of the old MCO, like back when I was a kid by Defermian, right? And you could like go through every single line and every single move. It's not exactly structured in that way. 
because you know it, it's not such a big not such a big difference especially at the club player level between white's different moves they don't fundamentally alter the character of the game uh, in some openings they do like if you think about the Kyra Khan right which is in some ways like the, the closest cousin to the let's say to the Scandinavian e4 c6 d4 d5 well there's an enormous difference now in terms of the game is going to be require a very different set of skills and and knowledge and a different toolkit if white plays knight c3 and you exchange on e4 or if white plays e5 the advanced variation okay now white is claiming space it's a completely different pawn structure uh you know white is going to attack on the king side maybe h4 you know th these kind of lines then there's the panel of botvinnik attack e takes g5 and c4 now you're playing an isolated queen's pawn structure an entirely different body of knowledge and information you know a, a way to handle chess different you know kind of skills involved in terms of like the balance between you know calculation and memory and so forth right all of these skills coming into play totally different now there's also this line like knight f3 uh was it knight c3 and d3 maybe you exchange queen you get like a queenless middle game again you know very different character of position different uh you know requires different balance of of the chess skills so you know that's those things are are what make chess very very challenging right and and, and like i said i mean it's going to be challenging no matter what you do chess is a really hard game um but i think what's really nice about the scandinavian from a practical perspective is that you right away it, it's not it's not uh white doesn't really have that same kind of choice white uh really white you know the pawn is under attack immediately and the options are not objectively equal like they are like i just mentioned with the Cairo Khan, right you could say that more or less the advanced variation the main line knight c3 the old main line let's say uh the panov botvinnik attack they're, they're, you know objectively speaking all of the great players have played all of them so there's you can't say that like one is you know clearly better than the other so in other words if you play the karakan you're going to have to be prepared for all of these different kinds of systems and it's your opponent who's deciding uh which one which one you're going to have to deal with you may not be in the mood for you know a, a memory fight in the advanced variation but that's what you'll have to deal with you may you know or you may not be in the mood for an isolated queen pawn but that's what you'll have to deal with but with the scandinavian i mean basically 99.9 percent .9 of the time you're going to get the same very similar um character of position so that's very comforting you know that's very comforting and it's kind of unique i mean you know i think most openings um don't give you that same consistency and then you know it's it's actually you know the ideas once you have the the sort of ideas there you know it's relatively easy to handle you have this open d file you know that kind of like suggests you know where to put some of your pieces you're gonna have good control of you know you know usually your pawns go to e6 and c6 you know your bishop you try to get outside of the pawn chain it's all very kind of natural and so forth now obviously no opening is you know perfect um, otherwise everyone would just play that one opening over and over and over again right i mean you know but i think that the the weaknesses the downside what you're giving um in the scandinavian especially in the queen d8 line which is the one that i recommended at the club player level are not the kinds of things that club players even up through expert i would say are really prepared to take advantage of it requires like a very energetic play because basically all you've got for it is like a tempo even the tempo is a little bit a little bit questionable to some extent because the knight on c3 is actually not not always optimally placed on c3 because i'm going to put my pawn on c6 right and so that that limits that's basically you know sort of semi-dominating your knight so the knight on c3 often has to has to move again 
and and you know like sometimes you'd rather have the two pawns in the center d4 and c4 uh, but now your knight is standing in the way of your c pawn so there are ways of course to you know to make use of that um but i like i said it's not the kind of thing i think that you know the majority of your opponents are going to be able to carry out you know you know in that kind of a precise way for the number of moves that they would need to do it so i think basically the advantage that white gets sort of dissipates in the next few moves the advantage they get from you having given this you know from this tempo and uh and then you get you know you get a just basically to you know to use the ideas that you know and that you're more familiar with and more experienced with so you know so that's why i was very enthusiastic about that line i sort of stumbled upon it um, myself um this was in the period this is it really helped me to make master actually because i was sort of an expert and it really helped me to solidify get those 300 games to get that life master because I, I was playing a lot of lower rated players you know i i want another thing that's part of my background is when i got to um after college i moved to connecticut and i opened my own chess club along with my best friend uh and partner uh business partner at the time in norwalk connecticut we opened a chess club and one of the things we did was we ran quads you know every every weekend that was a popular format over there and you know i'd often be like in a quad where i was like one of, you know one of the higher players but the other players were you know, like expert level, because because it was a quad. So, you know, I needed something where, and I was playing them all the time, a lot of times the same people. So I'd like, I needed something where, you know, I could, was kind of low maintenance on my part. And I could, and I could, at the same time, I could play it fairly regularly and feel kind of confident in it. And, you know, it took me a while, but like I said, eventually I experimented with some things. I eventually stumbled on this and like my results were really good. And um, I started to get like, you know, a, a sort of um, critical mass or, fair number of games under my belt where I was like pretty comfortable, you know, and getting comfortable positions and having great results and not having to, you know, do a lot of repairs every time that I would trot it out for the next game, you know? Uh, and so that's sort of where eventually I was like, you know, I looked at the literature and I was like, um, at the time, this was over 10 years ago, easily, you know, I was like, I don't really see a lot of literature on this. I saw like Michael Adams had played it a few times. I got in touch with Michael Adams about, you know, about the book. He was he was really supportive. You know, there there were like a couple of I think maybe like an article or you know it's not like nobody had ever played it before or talked about it before, but there certainly was no no book on it. Um, and I just thought, look, you know, if people like this has been really helpful to me, and and I feel like club players it would it would be helpful to them. You know, if it worked for me, why can't it work for someone else? I'd, I'd love to share some knowledge. And it was my first book, so I was like, oh, you know, that'd be cool. Try to write a book. And um, yeah, so that's sort of the origin story of that. And I think I think um, definitely it's 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 far far outsold the second book, and you know, and uh, I got I got a good amount of positive feedback about it. So I think that that's you know that's been nice. Yeah, looking at the reviews, they're good. The uh, three Queen D eight Scandinavian simple and strong. That one, there's only two left in stock. More on the <laughs> way. At least at least that's what it says. I don't know if anyone's listening. See what yours says. That's what mine says. I still think I feel like they do that to. <laughs> like they target those. I don't know. My computer says only two left. Now let's talk about uh, one last thing before I let you go. Your other book, where again there's only one left in stock. <laughs> it says it's called, I should say, "Opening Originals: Strong Sidelines for Club Cats." Assuming is about some opening sidelines, maybe some off book ideas that work well for club players. Seems very interesting. Maybe you could just talk about that one a little bit. Yeah, so you know, this was sort of um the the sort of like um uh 
idea, I guess, came from a similar uh, place in the sense that these were things, again, that, you know, I, I had sort of stumbled upon in one way or the other. Some of them were kind of like old ideas that hadn't been used in a long time, but really never seemed to have been, you know, like refuted in any kind of way. Others were, um, others were things, some, a couple of them became quite topical. Like I think I, uh, there's a line in there in the Cairo Khan, uh, E4, C6, D4, D5 in the advanced version, E5, C5. Uh, that like basically turned into some huge, like nowadays, I think people quite recently, in fact, in the last, I would say six months to a year, I've been seeing a lot of that um, on the board. Um, but of course, this book was written, I don't know, you know, six years ago or something like that. Um, so it's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a um, diverse sort of set of lines. Basically, it's just, you know, these kind of wrinkles, some of them happened in mainline openings, but they were um, little wrinkles, like in the King's Indian defense, I was playing a lot of um, the knight to d7. Now, again, if you study games from the the heyday of the King's Indian, like the 50s and the 60s, you know, and Bronstein and um, Nidorf or whoever, all these people, you know, were playing it, um, then, you know, uh, there's no surprise, no surprise there at all. I had an idea that I saw from a Fisher game in the Rui Lopez, I remember, uh, where the knight comes to h4 very early, you know, in like one of the main lines. Again, you know, knight h4 is kind of a th thematic idea to some extent, but you just never see it at that particular particular place. So they're like, you know, these little kind of adjustments that kind of, you know, give the game a little bit of a different character. And if you happen to know kind of, you know, you have, a, you have a, your sort of guiding light, your North Star, you know where you're headed and the other person isn't really quite sure exactly what, what you're up to. Um, you know, then it then it's uh, it can kind of give you a an edge. And I, I tried to, I think, pick things that were not like going to be, um, you know, it wasn't like a like a tactical trick where the whole thing falls apart if the person knows like, you know, like one, you know, one or two moves. It's more of like a conceptual thing. You know, it's, it's interesting looking back, like I said, because some of the things remain very obscure. Others, you know, are now like much more popular. Um, some of them, I think that the, the modern engines, you know, can give you know the opponent a bigger let's say edge if he, if they do the right thing than than I than I understood than the computers understood at the time that I wrote it and that you know I understood but you know again it was just sort of like these are things that I you know at the time I was playing a lot of games um you know and and um because you know it was it was my chess club so it was like I was playing you know like basically like let's say at least six tournament games a week and and sometimes more and so and that was that went on for years and so you know i needed things you know i was kind of picking up a lot of ideas and i i needed things that you know could kind of um throw people off a little here and there um and so it was kind of you know it was easy to collect some of this some of this um and then I, of course i had a lot of games so then i could use my own games you know sort of as examples so yeah that's sort of how that how that came about dan i think i'm going to end it there this was a fascinating discussion very very philosophical very deep very good so, sort of deep dive into the sort of mindset slash philosophical kind of end of it right kind of nice to just get away from tactics and just some practical things we touched on that a bit but i enjoyed this sort of a deeper dive into just the whole general approach uh your books sound fantastic we'll put links for those so national master daniel lowinger thank you so much thank you i really enjoyed it great discussion and for all of you listening at home we really appreciate it and i hope you win your next game have a great day everybody